To another episode of Race the Bottom with me, your host Joe Harmon. This week's episode is a follow-on, really. After my interview with Miguel Delaney, I really wanted to follow it up with almost a continuation of the topic of the Twitter bots that I broached with Miguel. And so I got in touch with Mark Owen Jones. Mark is an assistant professor of Middle Eastern Studies at the Hamad bin Khalifa University in Qatar. Now, Mark specialises in digital humanities, in social media disinformation, and he did a tremendous thread last week on the rise of fake Twitter accounts that were set up in lieu of the Newcastle proposed takeover by Saudi Arabia. All of a sudden, Twitter has seen a number of accounts set up featuring the Saudi Arabia flag, featuring the hashtag NUFC, um, featuring... Uh, hashtag MBS. So all of this plays a role in what I feel distorts the narrative of very difficult topics to broach such as the Saudi takeover of Newcastle and the element of sports washing that Saudi Arabia's PIF fund is enabling through the purchase of Newcastle United and it becomes very difficult to have discussions about these topics because there is a groundswell of disinformation and and ways in which the narrative is muddied through these bots. It fascinates me greatly. Um, if you do want to explore more, please follow Mark Owen Jones. He's on Twitter as at Mark Owen Jones. There are a number of other uh, notable researchers out there, uh, people like Caroline Orr, and Elliot Higgins of Bellingcat, they are all specialists in this field. I am not, and I'm super excited to speak to Mark um, about this topic. Hope you enjoy the interview. Mark Owen-Jones, welcome to Race the Bottom. Thanks very much for coming on the show. This topic specifically is something that I covered with Miguel Delaney last week and it is something that I think is rising in the football landscape and I think it's something that a lot of people don't know or are very uncomfortable with or, or perhaps aren't even aware how quickly what we're going to talk about has moved on over the last couple of years. So kind of Twitter bots, sock puppets, Mark, could you give us an overview of what your knowledge of kind of social media disinformation your experience of it. What exactly are those those things that I've alluded to? Yeah, um, I think it's a good place to start. There are a number of definitions that get thrown around a lot, a number of terms that get thrown around a lot. And, and you know, sometimes they're useful shorthand. Lots of people say Twitter bot when they mean actually a lot of different things. Um, but a Twitter bot technically would be like an automated account, an account that automatically retweets or tweets certain information. It's been programmed to do that by someone. Uh, and if you do this, you could, for example, have thousands of fake accounts automatically retweeting this one tweet that you want to promote. That could be an example of what a Twitter bot might do. Obviously, bot being short for robot. Um, a, a sock puppet account is slightly different. A sock puppet account is uh, a real person's account that has been taken over by someone else, or it's an account that appears to be someone, but the actual person operating is someone different. And often what these accounts do is that they take on an identity and promote a certain message, usually because they're employed by some PR company 
or some other nefarious agency. Sometimes it's just people messing around. Uh, so, you know, you, you can't always be too careful. But a sock puppet is definitely a real person operating an account that does not appear to be theirs, whereas a bot is an automat automated account. Um, and there's a common terminology that's uh, become prominent since social media started, which is astroturfing, which I suppose is also relevant for football. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. For Ging. But I mean, astroturfing is a great term because it's um, obviously astroturf is artificial grassroots, essentially. And so what astroturfing is, is the use of fake accounts like sock puppet accounts or bots to create the illusion of grassroots support for a certain position, right? So for example, if we're using the current context, say I want to, um, I want to, you know, I'm, I'm working on behalf of, say, a company that wants to buy a football club. Uh, and then I think I want to get the fans on board with this purchase. Right. So what do I do? I want to insert my message into the online community. So I'll set up a bunch of sock puppet accounts that, for example, look like football fans. And those accounts are all, you know, they look real and they're all singing the praises of this takeover. They say this is a great thing. This is a good thing for the club. You know, ignore the naysayers. This is a fake community because they're not real fans. They're a, either a PR company or some outfit that's been literally employed to create this illusion of grassroots support for something and that's something that i think gets to the heart of what's happening on twitter more generally in politics whether it's brexit or something else but especially football clubs what we're seeing a lot of now or at least what i believe we're seeing a lot of is um the use of astroturfing campaigns on social media to create support for decisions like uh, football club purchases obviously recently we've seen a lot of golf money going into european football um abu dhabi and, and man city is one example Obviously, the, 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 the Newcastle Football Club and Saudi or Saudi Investment um, Fund is, is, is one of the latest things that's creating um, this kind of buzz around this. We've seen it in other cases, too. I mean, we saw recently with um, the Qatar World Cup. Uh, I mean, I, haven't, I didn't study the bid as such, but I know there was a recent report recently released uh, by Graphica that showed that there was a number of these accounts that appeared to be, you know, uh, Qatari citizens supporting the FIFA World Cup in Qatar and criticizing the neighboring countries. Uh, and, and this appears to have been an operation run out by some company out in India, right? So we are seeing more and more examples where these operations are being exposed to some extent. And um, so it's a very hard, it's a very murky world to navigate. When you look at an opinion online, unless you know that person is real, you can't actually be 100% sure that what you're reading is the words of a real fan or the words of someone who's being paid essentially to do promotion for for some other entity really interesting um one of the things that you piqued a lot of the football twitter sphere's interest was the thread that you did and for those who don't follow mark you really need to at Mark Owen Jones, because uh, I find how you break down this information that you're retrieving, Mark, and, and investigating really, really well done. It's really digestible. And the thread that you did on the Newcastle fans, I'm just wondering if you could break that down for us. Further question, I'm really interested in like, how you navigate this sphere and how you find this information. But could you give us a, a roll through of that thread with the two yeah. fan accounts? Sure, absolutely. So um, give me one second as well, so mm -hmm. I can just get my notes up if that's okay. Yeah, but, um, yes, the thread you alluded to, or you mentioned rather, is specifically, um, it involves two of the Twitter accounts that I, that I kind of mentioned, or an aspect of this tactic, uh, whereby it appears that uh, two accounts had been set up to look like they were genuine 
Newcastle United fans probably living in the Northeast. Uh, one in particular was a young woman, maybe even a girl, the age was unclear, but the profile picture was a photo of a, a girl wearing a Newcastle United jersey and taking a selfie. And her name, uh, I believe, was, uh, well, it was Georgia. So Georgia, uh, you know, it sounded like a very plausible name for someone mm-hmm. who might you know, be from the UK uh, or, or, or North America. Um, and it was very strange because of this uh, account, which had been set up again in April 2020, so it was a new account, was tweeting about the Newcastle takeover bid. And she tweeted a, a tweet that involved, in this case, uh, the Emir of Qatar, who, for all intents and purposes, and it was a picture of uh, the Emir of Qatar, apparently from his cell phone that had been procured in a potentially uh, illicit way, taking a selfie of himself topless. I know this sounds very strange, but I'm going somewhere with this. And she said, so ugly, right? So this, the thing, think, this Twitter account of what, let's say, an 18-year-old girl from the Northeast tweeting about the Newcastle takeover, also tweeting a picture of the Emir of Qatar, again, not ostensibly involved in the Saudi takeover bid, saying so ugly about this guy she might not know. Firstly, in itself, that's interesting because this image was iconic of a political crisis that broke out in the Gulf region two years ago, where Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Bahrain, and the UAE uh, cut off ties with Qatar. And part of this campaign was spreading uh, propaganda and disinformation about certain aspects to do with Qatar, where it was Al Jazeera and Qatar's media, to also criticizing the ruler, right? And a lot of the time, this photo, a topless photo that had been, I think, taken from a hacked device, was being circulated, right? So this was very common back there two years ago. So lots of people, uh, at least um, my colleagues who study the region, because remember my, although I do media studies and digital humanities, my my background is is, as an Arabist, uh, Arabic studies, politics of the region. So, you know, this was a very unusual move that this picture then was circulating again. And of course, there's a logic to it in a way, is that um, the uh, Al Jazeera Sports, which became BN Sports, has, um, is a Qatari-based channel. And this has been trying to pressure the Premier League not to take on, not to allow Newcastle to be taken over by the Saudi Investment Corporation, right? Because uh, it's it's kind of known that after this blockade two years ago, uh, a Saudi outfit called Be Out Q was set up to pirate content from BN Sports, which was the officially licensed distributor of Premiership football in the region, and then redistribute the Saudi audience. The reason for this being because Saudi, UAE, Egypt, and Bahrain in the blockade had blocked Qatari media channels, including being sports. So there's a political cost here for Saudi. They didn't want their population to not be watching football because football is mm-hmm. very popular in most countries, especially in the region, right? So they created this um, pirated uh, station, right? Uh, and so the Qataris have been lobbying the British uh, to try and do something about this. Philip Hammond, I think a year ago, went to when he met Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, actually raised the issue of this piracy because the premiership obviously don't want uh, their product that's being purchased legitimately to be then pirated. So the actual, I think it was the Chancellor then, brought it up in this meeting. So this is a known issue. So this is how the Qatari connection somehow involved. But again, it's still a pretty tenuous link, I think, for a young uh, Geordie fan to be tweeting a topless photo of the Emir saying so ugly. Now that's strange in itself, but what was also strange is that two identical tweets of the so ugly with a photo of the ruler of Qatar appeared, one from this Georgia account, one from another account that also appeared to be a group of, I think, British women wearing the Newcastle top. So the question is, why were these two different accounts on Twitter tweeting the, exactly the same text, so ugly, with a photo of the email? Well, what my experience in analyzing 
Twitter has usually shown me is that this is a good example that someone who's running one of these astroturfing campaigns has made a mistake of some kind. They've created accounts to create the illusion that there are real fans tweeting on these issues. And somehow, if they are operating multiple accounts from TweetDeck or another platform that allows you to send tweets from multiple accounts, but from one device, you can make these kind of mistakes. So my theory in this case is that someone had sent out the same tweet from different accounts. And what that did, it obviously showed that there was some strange connection between these two brand new accounts. Soon afterwards, one of the accounts uh, had that tweet deleted. The image changed from a picture of this young woman from Newcastle or the Northeast, presumably, to a picture of, uh, it was the Newcastle United's logo, and the account name suddenly was in Arabic. And the content of the account was then suddenly being tweeted in Arabic. And all the previous uh, tweets from that account had been scrubbed. Now, in both instances, both the account names had MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, in the Twitter handle, right? So suddenly, the initial project to have ever set these accounts up was to create these kind of Geordie fans that appeared to be celebrating not just or, or encouraging the takeover, but celebrating Mohammed bin Salman, the sort of de facto ruler of Saudi, which again is a very odd occurrence and also indicative of the kind of uh, Twitter activity you see in the Middle East. There's essentially a lot of propaganda around Mohammed bin Salman. A lot of Twitter accounts sort of praise him, lionize him, have pictures of him, have accounts. So to see those accounts suddenly in the English kind of football Twitter sphere was mm. very suspicious. And again, it's indicative of things that we've seen before. You see these massive hashtag campaigns on a certain issue. You know, um, for all intents and purposes, the NUFC takeover hashtag was likely dominated by a, a substantial number of these accounts that probably claimed to be real fans, but weren't. At the same time, there's obviously going to be a lot of legitimate accounts using that hashtag. The problem is the aim of this kind of propaganda. How many people do you think you need this is a rhetorical question, but feel free to, to answer no, it. No, go on. How, how many people do you think you need operating fake accounts? Would you need to infiltrate the discourse of an entire legitimate community? Yeah, it's, it's what I keep thinking about. Mm. Um, I, I don't know. I... No, I, this is the thing. I mean, like, let's say if I was paid full time to set up accounts, I could set up a lot of Twitter accounts in one day. Mm. I mean, I'd still have to... Ch get a new email address. And in, in theory, you know, it's, it's harder if you don't have unique telephone numbers. But if you had the resources like a lot of these companies do, and we know for a fact that a lot of, especially high level operations like this, they just get mass produced SIM cards from say China in, in order to help create unique social media accounts. You know, I could set up five or 10 Twitter accounts, or I could buy, because there's a market for secondhand Twitter accounts, I could buy access to hundreds or thousands of accounts. I could, as an individual person, could operate potentially uh, 10 of these accounts myself. Uh, and if I'm doing that from nine to five as a job, I am producing a lot of content because I'm not just then your casual tweeter who might tweet, I don't know, two or three times a day, then not tweet for a few days. I am literally tweeting every day, multiple times from multiple accounts. In many ways, I am the one defining the conversation. And if I can get my talking points or the talking points of whoever has hired me into um, a real community of online users, uh, then that's dangerous. And the, I'm increasing the odds of doing that by simply producing a lot of content online, dominating the discussion online. Um, whether this impacts policy and what actually happens is a different debate. But I think the danger is if you have um, hundreds of thousands of accounts manipulating the online information sphere, it becomes increasingly difficult to know what's true, what's not, what's good, what's not good. You know, In the case of Saudi Arabia and UFC, I mean, the big bone of contention now is do you allow a country with 
very significant human rights abuses to take over an English football club. So the, the, the information operation in this context is trying to diminish the influence or the, d- diminish the kind of salience of Saudi's human rights abuses, uh, which is it's disturbing because essentially the narrative then is like, who cares about human rights abuses? Or what do human rights abuses and matter in one country impact taking over a football club? You know, they try to diminish the value of human rights, which personally, I'm not saying this is necessarily true for everyone. I personally find that objectionable because I think human rights is something that we've worked towards uh, over centuries of conflict. And to just diminish them like that for the sake of purchasing a football club, I think is, 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 is very problematic. And also football is a very emotive issue. So I think it's very easy to exploit people's love of their mm. club, a very passionate kind of, of thing, exploit that love uh, by, by, by m- making them maybe blind to some of the potential moral choices or moral consequences involved or clouding those judgments, right? So this is not always about just saying, oh, if people support the Newcastle club takeover, they're obviously immoral. That's not what it is. It's just this, is the information that they are, being provided in order to make the best decisions being clouded by this disinformation problem. And that's, I think, the real issue here. Mark, do you think that football, by its very nature, um, there isn't really a stop button on football, even though that season stops, that summer window is usually filled with a tournament of some sort. What I was kind of thinking of the other day is how the Anthony Joshua fight that occurred Mm. in uh, Saudi Arabia a couple of months ago, that that was kind of a one hit it would be very hard to engage those astroturfing aspect with with a single event. And the beauty of football is that it's just continual and and you have this continual platform of, like you said, really high emotive material that you really connect and engage with. And just the sheer nature that football is pretty much 24-7 makes it the perfect vehicle to utilise and and capitalise on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you have this... uh... The constant nature of football, even from a sort of, I guess, a business model standpoint, if you're a club now or an entity, you can enlist the services. It becomes part of your kind of um, uh, your sort of uh, operating procedure. You know, you enlist a, a PR company who does X amount of work for you and does it on a rolling basis and is continual. So I think what that leaves the door open for is long term, uh, long term infiltration of uh, legitimate communities with potentially fake accounts. Whereas you mentioned with the boxing match, it's a one-off. Yes, you might get someone to 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 create a fanfare or create some sort of um, fuss around a specific event, but that will die down and will disappear. Mm. I think football. There's a very real danger that this is an ongoing phenomenon, and it's becoming deeply uh, embedded and entrenched in the in the online community. And I think that's quite disturbing. And um, and it's a different it's a different thing. I mean, I, I think f- people's allegiance to the teams, whether it's football or other team sports, American football, basketball. I mean, I'm familiar with, with football in the UK simply because that's my background. But, you know, we both know how passionate people about, are about their clubs. Mm. Uh, and I think that because of that, there is a, that this there is an element of exploitation to this. It's people are. Um, people might be being manipulated and at the same time they their passions are being exploited uh, by the whole industry and let's not forget part of this is money this is all about you know the extraordinary um, amount that wealth has changed the game i mean um, the fact is is you know to be very competitive you need a lot of money so the idea that a, a saudi a rich country like saudi take or its investment fund taking over newcastle is appealing to many because that would in theory it's, it's indicative of success. We've seen how it, it helped Man City get the top. We've seen how it helped Chelsea improve. You know, I think for many Newcastle fans who want the team to do well, the prospect of uh, 
you know, a, a takeover by a wealthy outfit is incredibly appealing. So they will be looking to try and potentially justify that move. And these online propaganda outfits will be there trying to uh, appeal to that instinct to want this to happen. And I think that's, that's where the manipulation kind of comes in. How do these outfits set up then, Mark? Uh, you talked about some of them being in mm. India. Um, it's, a, it's an aspect of the field that I wonder and hypothesize about. It's, a, it's an important question. I mean, the, the, the important thing about this world, it's a murky world. Mm. And it's still very little is known about it. So it's like the Cambridge Analytica scandal. These kind of things are happening all the time, but it's only every so often that we get a, an insight into how these kind of things work. So what we know about these kind of social media disinformation campaigns, if we look at known ones, is that often it's almost like a call center, right? Let's take the India example. You know, it'll be people, um, you know, sitting in front of their computers in a large office, you know, potentially hundreds of these people just running social media accounts all the time, constantly, like a call center would take calls. And that would be a bigger operation, a smaller operation. It could be, you know, it could be people working from home. You know, when you see those dodgy ads, want to make this amount of money a day, you know, phone this number. It could be someone um, just working from their home, doing it freelance. We know that there's operations like this in Macedonia. We've seen them in Poland. You know, these operations can range from 10 people to hundreds of people. It's big in the Philippines now too. We know that in Russia, there's the Internet Research Agency, which employs loads of former journalists, uh, dozens of former journalists to operate these fake accounts out of a, a specific office. Um, so it depends on the country. It depends on the scale, but it's like anything. There's big outfits, there's small outfits. But I would certainly say that, um, I mean, what I think is interesting in, a, say, a country like India, which has the infrastructure for call centers, as we know, because so much of what happens in the UK is outsourced to um, these call centers. I think what that suggests is that there's going to be a growing industry of these call center type operations that also exist as PR astrotyping operations. And that's facilitated by the fact that many Indians speak, you know, English. Uh, so language is obviously an element to this as well. Uh, the same is true in the Philippines, where we've seen these huge campaigns. The election of uh, Duterte was often cited as, as one of the factors was, that was cited in his success was the uh, these huge astroturfing campaigns on social media. No way. Um, wow. Yeah, so I mean, it's hard to determine whether they actually had a direct role in the success, mm. but they were very, very active in smearing the opposition or trying to bury criticism yeah. of him. So, you know, and, and this is what is said of Brexit and the election of Trump. There's a lot of talk about the, the kind of use of suspicious accounts by the Russians, Chinese, Iranians, others, um, to try and create this fake illusion of public support for certain positions. This is simply happening with football, football too. Mm. You know, it's a service offered by PR companies that is scalable and it's, uh, you know, it's applicable to any sort of situation where you might want to try and increase the popularity of a certain position, whether it's the takeover of a football club or the promotion of a certain political candidate. How do you investigate this information, Mark? Reading your threads, your, your breakdown of like the radars, the linking and the mapping of keywords. How do you go about that? So it depends. I mean, most of my research focuses on Twitter. Mm -hmm. uh, Twitter has an open API, which essentially means you can download a certain amount of Twitter data, right? So what I tend to do, I look at usually hashtags and I look at to see who is tweeting on a hashtag to see if I can see patterns in behavior that would suggest some sort of suspicious behavior. So I'll give a, a, a fairly relatable example. Say if I download um, tweet 20,000 tweets on a hashtag, say the hashtags NUFC takeover. Right. When I download those tweets, I have a certain amount of information. I have the content of the tweets. I have the time of the tweets. I have what hashtags are in it. Uh, and I have certain information about the users, the accounts. Right. 
And one of the crucial bits of information that I've been using is the date the account was created. So, for example, say if you have is that sorry tweets. to jump in, Mark? Is that because yeah, no, that's fine. Is it because that can't be faked? Because I know location, you can just type in location. Sure. But is Absolutely. That... So location, it's is is you can put whatever you want in there. Yeah. Account creation date, you can't fake. Um, if you're taking it direct from Tweet or API. And one of the reasons why it's interesting is because, say if I have um, 20,000 tweets on the hashtag NUFC takeover, and these 20,000 tweets have been produced by, say, 5,000 accounts, because you know maybe one account tweets 10 times, another account tweets three times, right? So then I analyze these 5,000 accounts. I see, you know, I just plot it on a graph. When were these accounts created? We know Twitter's been around since about 2006. Right. If I suddenly see that the average amount of accounts created per, per month is 200 since that time, but then I see on, in one month uh, we've had 1,000 accounts created and like 500 of them are created on one day, and all those accounts happen then to be tweeting on the same topic, uh, that is already in, an indicator of an anomaly. That to me suggests two things. One, maybe there was something that happened on that day that led people to join Twitter. Two, someone hastily set up or was asked to set up a network of accounts to create an astroturfing campaign. And more often than not, that is the reason. It's people, you know, some, some entities like, right, set up 500 accounts because we need to tweet on this hashtag. Um, and so what you do, you see these spikes or anomalies in, in the accounts that enable you to make um, uh, an educated uh, inference that those something suspicious about those accounts. And then you can check the individual accounts and you can look at the histories because often they've been tweeting about the same things, even if it's not the NUFC takeover. Because if I'm a company operating fake accounts, one, one day my client might be you know, the Saudi investment fund. The other day it might be some other company who wants me to advertise a product. But if I see this collection of accounts all created on the same day with a similar tweeting history, then I know that there's probably something suspicious at play. So that's one example of how, how it might be determined. There's other things as well. You know, if I did a network graph to see who is tweeting who, you can, you can for example, look at the behaviors of these accounts. Like if an account has tweeted 300,000 times, that is what might be known as spammy behavior. That account is tweeting so much that it would suggest that whoever's running it is either doing nothing else with their life, there's an element of automation or is being paid to do it simply because they're promoting so many messages. Can there's accounts lots of different things. have both, yeah. Mark? Can um, accounts have like semi automization and, and a manual user? Absolutely, yeah. So this is, um, there have been studies done that tried to determine whether an account might have both and it is perfectly possible. Um, the problem is it's, in, you know, Twitter in theory, will remove automated accounts or accounts that they believe to be automated. Mm -hmm. uh, and they're getting better at this, but it's still certainly not uh, foolproof. I think the, the biggest worry we have now is the fact that there are real people operating accounts. So sock puppet accounts, I think, are going to be a bigger problem than bots, simply because it's, it's um, you know, I'm a, if I'm a human using an account, then it's going to be hard for an algorithm to determine that I'm a bot. You know, and if, if Twitter had an algorithm that was really, like, sensitive, suddenly loads of real people would have their accounts suspended or limited, which happens. I mean, it happens. My, my account's been limited once or twice for various reasons, um, but probably because users mass report it. I mean, that's another tactic, you know. If you're there criticizing, for example, the Saudi government, you know, it's, it's common for loads of accounts who operate for these companies to report you to Twitter okay. because when you, they reach a certain number of complaints, it triggers an automatic suspension and, and et cetera. So it's a way of censoring there's all sorts of ways you can manipulate the 
the information environment using these kind of techniques. Uh, but absolutely, yes, it's possible to have hybrid uh, cyborg accounts, if you will. Mm. For me, my kind of first foray into this was when Man City were taken over mm. by ADUG. Tremendous level of Twitter backlash from Man City account users. I've experienced it myself, certain levels, uh, really overwhelming. That was my first kind of, wow, gosh, there's a world of the Twitter sphere here that no idea of. And it really, you know, the accounts were, were cropping up. Have you looked into at all Man City aspect of it? Or is it from the Saudi Newcastle takeover that's led you with a bit of interest into it from there? I've looked in uh, to a certain extent the Man City case as well um, and in particular I remember the story about there was one particular well-known Twitter account that appeared to be giving these very coherent talking points to try and debunk any attempt to criticize the takeover and this account was for all intents and purposes anonymous and no one really met him until he went on to one show. That to me fit the bill of this kind of um, classic information operation. Someone potentially working for a PR company is giving these very scripted lines uh, and then infiltrating the kind of legitimate community to give these talking points that can be then used by real people to defend anyone criticizing the takeover. Um, the fact that this account that became so prominent was also kind of anonymous, I think was a big uh, element of suspicious for me. And also the, the number of new accounts that cropped up were also suspicious. But I think one of the interesting things about this type of behavior is the aggression that I think was characteristic of a lot of this um, activity. I mean, don't get me wrong. I know people can be very emotive about sport and uh, football fans could be very genuinely passionate and that might encourage them to act in certain ways. But what I would see certainly with the Man City case is lots of journalists being attacked uh, by multiple accounts. And this is the kind of behavior I've seen since 2011, particularly in the Gulf, where I studied social media intimidation and trolling. Very aggressive accounts with very kind of uh, dubious provenance, attacking people, attacking journalists, attacking human rights activists online in large numbers. And that to me was indicative of some sort of influence campaign. Uh, I don't know how organic it is, but at the same time, it's very possible that you could, like I said earlier, you could have a few people operating like a PR type accounts, you know, basically feeding these talking points to a legitimate community, emboldening a, a real community with these kind of relatively strong talking points and then having them go on the offensive because that's how to have a successful campaign. A successful campaign isn't one that really clearly appears to be some sort of PR campaign. A successful campaign is one that where you can actually get real people, legitimate fans, organic people to take the message that you want them to take and then spread it through the community. Mm -hmm. So the point at which the PR starts and at which the organic community starts becomes increasingly blurred in this kind of analysis. But I would certainly say that in the Man City case, a lot of the accounts that I saw, these anonymous accounts spreading certain talking points, appeared to fit the bill of maybe some sort of agency trying to shape the narrative by inserting it into a legitimate community. Uh, and I think that's part of the problem. I mean, the, the bigger problem here is that Twitter's verification system is terrible. So anyone could set up an account without having to really prove that they are who they say they are. So the system itself lends itself to this kind of abuse. Hmm. Is there any hope for it to be managed, for, for Twitter to be able to get a hold of these accounts by the sounds of it? It doesn't. I think um, I'm, I'm very cynical, as you know. I mean, if I was to be positive, I know Twitter have done some things more recently to change it. But I was, at, um, I was in Brussels at this. It was, a, it was a big workshop to try and determine the EU's policy towards this information. And one of the things that was interesting, Facebook, uh, someone from Facebook was there and attended. The person from Twitter actually refused to attend. Right. No. Um, yeah, again, which was telling, and, and not all social media companies have the same attitude towards this. And I think one of the things that could be done, I mean, you can't solve this problem 100%, but 
and things that you could be done would be to have a more uh, strict verification system, right? People should have the, the choice to be verified, which did happen for Twitter for a few years and they stopped it for some reason. Um, that would at least allow people like you and me to sort of say, well, I, I choose, I'm not anonymous online, I choose to have a verified account. And that would, choose, that would allow someone else to be like, okay, I don't know this smart guy or I don't know this Joe guy, but at least I know that they've somehow verified and they're probably real. Mm. It means I could then dismiss all the anonymous accounts that are just cropping up out of anywhere mm. um, if they choose not to be verified. I mean, pe some people have very good reasons to want to hide their identity. I understand that. But at the same time, people need to be given a choice. It needs to be an opt-in system, not a form of just bestowing this kind of privilege of confirming identity to a certain community of you know, sportsmen or, you know, athletes, uh, celebrities, politicians. At the moment, it's very exclusive and it creates this tiered system and a sort of underbelly of just chaos, mm. <laughs> as it were. Um, but that's one thing. I, I mean, at the same time, you know, unscrupulous companies uh, operating these power operations are also part of the problem. Let's not forget a lot of these companies are British or American mm. and they sell their services, you know, bell potting, and we've heard a classic example. You know, they, riled, basically, they basically riled up race problems in South Africa, you know, because they were doing their, their job of trying to promote a certain client. Uh, and we know a lot of these companies work for Gulf regimes, um, offering God knows what type of services. So I think countries like the UK certainly could be more transparent or demand more transparency from certain operations, PR operations like Linton Crosby. We know, for example, Linton Crosby, the team that helped get Boris Johnson elected, uh, have also been working for the Saudi government to try and create astroturfing campaigns on Facebook to promote Mohammed bin Salman, right? You know, this is only found out through investigative journalism. It's not like this company has to go and sign a register and saying, listen, we're working on behalf of this company. So there's a lot of manipulation and deception that happens perfectly legally and from the respectable kind of offices of Mayfair uh, and Washington, D.C. That, we, that also need to be tackled. You know, there's a whole ecosystem and it's not just the social media companies. And it's not just the kind of you know, the people doing the, the legwork in these call center type operations in India. You know, there's always the respectable face of this deception mm. sitting somewhere in London, probably. Mm, absolutely. I felt like I first encountered it when, when Trump got to power, like Caroline Orr had done some work on it. And then yeah. Bellingcat's work kind of touched on it a little bit again. So I felt like way far away from my sphere of, of living. And then it was smaller again, kind of with Brexit. I was like, okay. And and now it's in my sphere of my life, right, where, where football is you know, my true love. Um, but I think it's most dangerous in the football context because actually, if you're infiltrating, you know, real communities of people, there's a very much a danger that you know you're getting to the kind of, uh, you know, sort of the crux of communities in in the UK. And I think mm -hmm. that's that's quite scary. Yeah, yeah, it truly is, truly is. Um, I just want to say massive thanks, Mark. Thanks I, a lot, Joe. It was a pleasure. To you, uh, again, the future, if possibility, and time yeah, to for different topics, but thanks. Just want to extend a tremendous thank you to Mark for what I found a really riveting, deeply fascinating conversation about something which, you know, like Mark said, is very clearly going to continue to affect the world of football and one of the things that I picked up on from what Mark was saying is that not only is this astroturfing disinformation campaign going to continue with football, is that Mark felt that it, it's a field where people can be deeply affected because sport is such an emotive thing for the mass populations of the world. Football is at that pinnacle and it means that people can be tapped into on a really deeply emotive level and those narratives that wish to be embedded into the football landscape for grander schemes can occur 
And I do think it's frightening. And I do think we need to be aware of it. And the more people that are aware, the better armed we are to combat it. I think it's so important with the NUFC takeover at the moment that Newcastle fans familiarise themselves with the fact that many of these accounts supporting the hashtag NUFC, having the Saudi Arabia flag on it, not only are they perhaps not the people that they say they are, but they're also more than likely behind a campaign that is deliberately designed to distort narratives and deliver misinformation. As always, you can find me on Twitter um, using the hashtag NUFC takeover. No, not really. I'm on at Ginola's left foot, or which is my personal account, I'm a real person, or at RTTB podcast, race to the bottom podcast. You can reach me on both of those. You can also check out the race to the bottom website, race to the bottom.net, and subscribe via iTunes or your audio platform of choice. Massive thank you to all seven of my listeners and hope to speak to you again soon. You are listening to Race to the Bottom.